Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. From movie set to multiplex, it's the business of film with James Cameron Wilson. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Hey, Stella! If you build it, you will come. Here's Johnny! Well, actually, here's Simon Rose. Are you join us for the Business of Film, where I am in conversation with James Cameron Wilson, who will take us through the box office chart for the last weekend and give us some film reviews at the same time. How wonderful. So, James, where do we begin? Well, I think we have to mention the disastrous weekend we had the weekend before last, because it was just down, 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 and we had an incredible heat wave. And last weekend, we didn't have any major blockbusters at all. But Mm. it was announced that Cineworld was going into bankruptcy. And it was all looking very, very grim. Mm. But at least from the previous weekend, it has gone up by 10.3% and without a new blockbuster in sight. Mm. And I put it all down to the weather, really. Yes. Yes, As we talk about people in this country don't think they can go to the cinema when there's a heat wave for some bizarre reason. Yes, odd. Whereas in America, that's exactly what they do. It's lovely and cool. Uh, Indeed. But then America has a lot more sunshine than we do. Although... (laughs) So do most places. Yeah, okay. (laughs) That's not always the case. Um, Anyway, but that's another story. Mm -hmm. So at number one, we have last week's number one, Nope which is Jordan Peele's very unsettling film starring Daniel Kaluuya, which over the weekend made £1.1 million, down 38%, with a total of £4.6 million. Bullet Train, on the other hand, which is still at number two, was only down by 8%, better than the 68% drop it suffered the previous weekend, So there's some good news here. It's now got a total of 6.9 million quid. DC League of Super Pets fared even better, only dropping 3% with a total of 10.6 million, which is a film about Crypto, who is Superman's retriever Labrador, who's Mm. been around longer than I have. And I was surprised how much I actually enjoyed this film, just because it's got witty dialogue apart from anything else which is more than i can say for minions the rise of group you took a deep <laughs> intake of breath there simon rose uh, well i know how much you love the minions <laughs> uh this remains at number four no change at all it hasn't gone up it hasn't gone down with a, a total of 40.7 million quid and obviously this film is made for a particular demographic which does not include me it's appears to be critic proof we have a new film at number five dragon ball super superhero which is the 21st dragon ball feature and i've never heard of any dragon ball super oh 
Well, thank goodness I've never heard of Dragon Ball. I thought I was just somehow missed completely. This is how many? This is the 20, 21st Dragon Ball feature, and it's the first one that's got into the British top 10. It's a Japanese computer animated martial arts fantasy. But I'm beginning to realize more and more I know very little about animation and cartoons and what a big business this is. And it's been going around for almost 100 years now. I mean, when, when was the first comic strip? That's something that I need to look up. Anyway, this is the twenty-first Dragon Ball Super Bill. Mm. Yes, <laughs> I've never, I've never got into them. I must say, but I know they are incredibly popular in certain quarters. However, there is another new film at number six, which I have seen, called Fisherman's Friends, One and All, which made six hundred and fifty-six thousand on its first weekend. How much? I just, um, <laughs> it made. 656,000. That is it. Not an enormous amount, is it? No, it's not. No, that's very sad. Hmm. Well, uh, should it should it tell us? Should it have should it have done better? Well, there are two types of sequel. Those that recycle the formula of the first film. And then the kind that develops the characters and goes in an entirely new direction. As I said last week, I was not a huge fan of the first Fisherman's Friends, mm. as I found it unbelievable, predictable, largely charmless, and above all, I thought it was very poorly shot. There's no excuse to produce a poorly shot film in Port Isaac, of all places. <laughs> no. No. Following the success of the first film, at least in the UK, there's now a much bigger budget to play with. and a new cinematographer, Toby Moore, a veteran DP who's largely worked in television. For those who don't know, The Fisherman's Friends of the title are not a brand of strong mental lozenges, but a group of fishermen who like to sing sea shanties to an adoring public. So now that the unlikely boy band of crusty old fishermen has made it into the charts, where on earth can their story go next? Well, they have to change in order to fit into a new world of political correctness that doesn't recognise such things as local terms of endearment, pet. Mm. And the band are faced with making a second album, a prospect that daunts even the most polished pop phenomenon. But as they tour the country from Brighton to Bristol and Birmingham to Edinburgh, their reputation is not always the squeaky cleanest. So before they can embark on their second album, they're given a crash course in how to be woke. Meanwhile, <laughs> the new boss at Universal Music feels that, as he calls them, Moby Dick and the Whalers are not on message and are not a good look for the label. But as Florence and the Machine and Mumford and Sons are behind on their respective schedules, the company needs a new record to fill that gap. And so in one of the funniest sequences, the band members sit around in a circle and try to grasp a mentality that is totally alien to them. So much like at an AA meeting, Dave Johns announces, I am Leadville and I am politically incorrect. Then, then instructed not to call the women in their company love or darling, uh, but by their given name. 
The film's lowest point is the inevitable audition sequence because there are 10 of them and, and uh, Jim's father has died, played by David Heyman. So they've got to get a 10th singer. And this goes on for far too long and features the usual array of tuneless contestants until the very last entrant, of course, knocks them sideways with his haunting voice. Well, that does by... sound original, James. I can't well, say that I've ever seen that scene in a movie before. <laughs> I know. Uh, that was really a low point. Yeah. But he is amazing, uh, Richard Harrington. But when the band's ostensible skipper, Jim, played by J James Purefoy, discovers at a press conference, no less, that Harrington isn't a fisherman, but a farmer, a muck spreader, he loses the plot, threatening the future of the band. But there are other curveballs, not least a rather difficult guest at the B&B &B run by Jim's mother, the always excellent Maggie Steed, who is herself the guest, that is, played by the Irish singer-songwriter Imelda May. Uh, she is a singer herself, and she's pretty good, I know. too. Well, she's a wonderful singer. I've got quite a lot of her music. Have you? Imelda May? Yes. Fantastic. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like her. She does some she's... very nice sort of, you know, almost sort of retro 30s and 40s stuff. I music gets used for adverts occasionally as well. Well, she's um, as an actor, this is her debut, and but she's very good too. I admit I did have pretty low expectations, and while many of the one-liners fall flat, many are actually very funny. And I was really drawn into the crumbling interior world of Jim, beautifully played by James Purefoy without an ounce of mawkishness, who is dealing with the death of his father and his drinking problem, his own drinking problem. Much of the time, I was hoping that the film was headed in the direction I expected. While there are surprises along the way, unless that is you have seen the reveal all trailer, mm, which yeah. pretty much ruins all the surprises. I watched it afterwards and I was screaming at my laptop. I won't say that the screening I attended was packed in a public cinema, but the audience was obviously loving the film and laughing out loud. And so you prefer this to the original? Oh, my, I think it's much better. It's a much better made film and it's less predict uh, predictable. I mean, there are moments where you hope you know where it's going and it does go, but there are all these curveballs and the characters are fleshed out much more. There's mm. much more of a backstory for all the characters. And it's rather like a favourite old pair of slippers. When you get to know characters, it's rather fun to revisit them, which is why soap operas, presumably, are so popular. Uh, and I think in the times we live in, something as feel-good as Fisherman's Friends, one and all, is not a bad way mm. to part your time. And talking about how badly shot the first film was... Mm. When some of the scenes of the coastal areas of Cornwall came on screen, the woman behind me gasped. It is such a beautiful-looking film. Wonderful. Yes, I was going to say, Port Isaac probably doesn't feature in very many contemporary movies, does it? Um, lots of period films. Anyway, James, I'm delighted by the revelation that you have so many pairs of slippers, you have a favourite pair. That's extraordinary. Um, flash news. Um, we're going to take a brief pause, but we'll continue down the chart in a moment. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Business of Film. James Cameron Wilson is taking us through the chart. We've got to number six, Fisherman's Friends, one and all, which is, James says, superior to the original film. And I guess well worth trying out. Much superior. And the audience I saw it with were obviously loving it and laughing out loud. And it was just a wonderful atmosphere to be in. Mm-hmm. At number seven, we've got a film that's even better looking than Fisherman's Friends, one and all. And that is Top Gun Maverick, which was at number eight. It's now at number seven. It's gone up 28%, 28% for a total of 79.6 million. It's in the 10th top 10 highest grossing films in the United Kingdom in the history of the box office here. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't yet overtaken Titanic, but I reckon another week and it could be at number nine in the all-time top 10. Elvis at number eight has also gone up by 17%. It was at number six. It's now got a total of £25 million, whereas four. Love and Thunder at number nine was at number five, and that's down 8%. But these are small percentages compared mm. to the previous weekend, and that has a total of 35.7 million. We have a new film at number 10 called Orphan First Kill, which is a prequel to the 2009 horror film Orphan, which I haven't seen, but I hadn't seen Orphan or Orphan First Kill. Okay, James, thank you very much. So that's the chart. I'm sure that does not the extent of your film viewing for the week. No, I have seen a lot of films, actually, but I'm only going to talk about two, unless we have more time. Mm. Uh, So to my Blu-ray of the week, which, although it happens to be 102 years old, is actually a remake of a Douglas Fairbanks Western. The latter, called The Lamb, which was made in 1915, was itself a big screen adaptation of a hugely popular Broadway play called The New Henrietta, which was a sequel to The Henrietta. Following the success of The Lamb, which launched the film career of Douglas Fairbanks and the newly established Metro Pictures' need for a wealth of stories to feed its new movie-making machine in Los Angeles, it was decided to remake The Lamb, again with Douglas Fairbanks starring. But Fairbanks had a change of heart and suggested they cast an unknown, propping up the stage actor William H. Crane, who was to repeat the role that he originated on stage. So William H. Crane received top billing, And the London-born director, Herbert Blachet, was hired to direct, who at the time was married to another filmmaker, Alice G., the first woman ever to direct a film. In addition, the screenplay of Herbert Blachet's movie was co-written by June Mathis, then the highest-paid scenarist in Hollywood, 
I'm saying all this because I think it's interesting that women were doing quite well over 100 years ago. Yeah, it was odd. It was the silent era, and then it just seemed to disappear. Mm, indeed. Well, mm. the film I'm talking about is called The Saphead, released in 1920, 102 years ago. It went on to inspire a number of future films, including the Preston Sturgis scripted Easy Living in 1937. One of my favourite films. Yeah. That and one of mine, indeed. Now, you may have noticed I haven't even yet revealed who replaced Douglas Fairbanks in The Sap Head, the sequel to The Lamb, the reason I was drawn to the film in the first place. And it is perhaps important to know going in that although the title role is played by Buster Keaton, before even a Buster Keaton short had been released, it is not a Buster Keaton film. So please don't go expecting a Buster Keaton mm. movie, because while it has many comical elements, it is largely a romantic tragedy, a satire on capitalism, in which Keaton plays the titular saphead. I might have called him more accurately, I think, the scapegoat. While my dictionary of slang describes a saphead as a fool, Keaton's ill-fated Bertie is a fool in love. What is remarkable about the film is that this unknown actor, who until then had played second fiddle to Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle in mm. a number of comic two-reelers, brought a whole new stillness to the medium of cinema. In some sequences, he hardly moves at all, which was completely alien to the medium at the time, which favoured vaudevillian buffoonery. The Saphead has been remastered from two existing prints, both of which are available on this groundbreaking Masters of Cinema release, along with a whole bunch of superlative bonus material, including a lively and very articulate commentary by the American film historian David Collat, interviews with Buster Keaton himself on audio, and a 29-minute Keaton short, The Scribe, shot on a treacherous Toronto building site in 1966. Beautifully. Oh, that was that was his last, I think I've seen a document, that included in a documentary, I've never seen the actual film. Okay. It was his last film, yeah, yeah in 1966. Beautifully preserved as it is, the saphead is an extraordinary time capsule. And although the title character really is a fool, Keaton manages to make us care for him, even when he is banished by his own father with just a million dollar check to his name and not a cent more. He is every bit as dim-witted as his privileged namesake, Bertie Wooster, but he is not beyond sacrificing himself for the greater good, even though he's not entirely sure why. So don't go expecting a Buster Keaton film or or even a, D, a comedy classic. This is the first feature he did in his golden era in the 1920s. He didn't direct this, but see it as a historical gem ahead of its time. It is a bit overcomplicated. I found it actually quite hard to follow at times, and it's rather wordy which is an odd thing to say about a silent film. But the bonus material, I was up all night. I was in the early hours watching <laughs> sort of short and commentary. I was so trapped into this time capsule. Sounds fascinating. It, fascinating. it, it is, it is. And okay. so to my streaming film of the week. Now, I may be odd, but I think the sign of a good comedy is how little music it has on its soundtrack. 
And that is certainly the case with official competition, which opens with Beethoven's Sonata Number no. 4, and then leave the comedy to the actors. Incidentally, the actors are Penelope Cruz, Antonio Banderas, and Oscar Martinez, and certainly Cruz and Banderas have never been funnier, largely because this black comedy teeters on the edge of plausibility. It's also extremely well made, one asset one doesn't often find with comedy. And if you weren't in the know, you might miss a lot of the jokes. In the tradition of Day for Night and The Stuntman and countless others, it is about the making of a film for a variety of different reasons. Why would anybody embark on making a film or become prime minister for that matter? We open with Umberto Suarez, who on his 80th birthday comes to the conclusion that he has no significant legacy. As he says to his secretary, he has an obscene fortune, but no prestige. So maybe he should build a bridge with his name on it or finance a cinematic masterpiece, a great movie, in inverted commas, with a great director and world-class actors. So Suarez has his minions option a Nobel Prize-winning novel at enormous expense and arranges to meet the award-winning director, Lola Cuavas, played by an auburn-haired, befreckled Penelope Cruz, mm -hmm. so she can clarify to him what the book means to her, this book that he has spent a fortune on and hasn't even read. This is the first great scene when Lola explains to Suarez what the novel, Rivalry, is actually about, and with the effective help of Eric Sarty on the soundtrack, brings the narrative alive, the story of two brothers who could not be less alike. Senora Cruz carries, carries off the scene brilliantly, and we begin to appreciate the magic of storytelling, although the filmmaker makes it clear that she's going to bring her own very personal interpretation to the material. So who to cast? She opts for only the best, the great stage actor of his era, Ivan Torres, played by Oscar Martinez, pitted against Felix Rivero, Antonio Banderas, an international box office sensation. So we have four personalities of widely diverging temperaments involved in the production of a deeply personal, hugely expensive enterprise, with the great Argentina actor Oscar Martinez as the great method actor and Banderas as the media courting movie star in the old-fashioned sense, you know the sparks are likely to fly. Think Laurence Olivier and Marilyn Monroe on the set of The Prince and the Showgirl. Mm. But nobody had reckoned on the unconventional modus operandi of Penelope Cruz's director. Not only does official competition look stunning, making the most of its vast interiors, but it's a very thought-provoking analysis of the filmmaking process, gently peeling away the layers of the childish, narcissistic Felix Rivero, as well as the elder statesman Ivan Torres who turns out to be terribly pretentious, vain, and more than a tad pompous. But it's Penelope Cruz who is the real revelation, not only as a comedy actress, but as an earthy, sexy, humane, innovative, creative spirit. And because it's all played absolutely straight, the comedy gains mm. enormous traction. 
although the film is so beautifully written and balanced, that it is also quite a profound dissertation on the process of art, life and creation. And Simon, I really can't wait to see it again. Oh, well, that's it's, fantastic. W- it's where written, can we see it, though? Okay, it's, it's let me just say, it's written and directed by Gaston Duprat and Mariano Cohn, and it's available in selected cinemas and on Curzon Home Cinema from this week, August the 26th. And it's incidentally, it's amazing that Penelope Cruz and Antonio Banderas, the two biggest stars in Spain, have never acted opposite each other again. They were both in Almodovar's Pain and Glory, but she was in flashbacks playing Banderas's mother. So to see the chemistry of them on screen was a real treat. And I, I wasn't you, I, expecting... can't, I can't actually remember what I saw last saw her in. Try to remember. Pain and glory? Oh, come around, I don't know. Anyway, sorry, James, I interrupted. Yeah, but no, sounds that, as if it's a, a strong recommendation. I might it's try been a very good one. week, actually, because I have been a bit snooty about some of the films, particularly the ones, the usual Marvel blockbusters. So I was in seventh heaven this week with these three movies, and Fantastic. they just got better and better and better, uh, ending with official competition. James, thank you very much indeed. I don't actually subscribe to Curzon Home Video, but I might see if I can find it on the cinema first. James Cameron Wilson, thank you very much. More Business of Film at the same time next week. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Houston, we have a problem. Snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Snakes.